Hello and welcome to the Michigan State University College of Osteopathic Medicine Statewide Campus System Medical Education Transformation Podcast. I am Deb Young, Director of Faculty Development. We spend a lot of time talking about change that we can make or preparing to make changes, but we don't often make progress on our goals. And this podcast is designed to give you strategy for implementing such change. I'm really excited to have with us um, my friend and colleague, Lynn Sinclair from the University of Toronto. She was with us um, for the medical education e-forum in the spring talking about facilitation of learning. Uh, we had a lot of great discussion um, and questions and feedback. And so I thought I'd bring her back uh, to do a podcast with me. Um, and even though she is from Toronto, um, she does have some connections to Michigan, although it is the Maize and Blue School. Her brother played hockey for the University of Michigan, um, but she has worked on grants with me with Michigan State. Um, she's done a couple different faculty development programs with me. So Lynn, thanks so much for being here with me today. Thank you, Deb. It's an honor to be invited. Uh, returning journey to continue to explore facilitation. And I'm very passionate about this topic, so very excited for our conversation. So um, in, the, in the past, you and I have had a, a lot of different conversations, um, but most recently we actually talked about how we were taught and oftentimes however we're taught, that's how we continue to teach and we see that in, in some areas of education. But you and I are a little bit different. We've totally changed our path and have gone more down this facilitation route. Um, can you tell me uh, a little bit about your journey and then talk about some of the data that supports facilitation versus the lecturing? Thanks, Deb. Yeah, I think it's important to just ground our listeners in a little bit about my background. And indeed, to your point, I was trained very traditionally. I went to a very conservative university called Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, Canada, where I would say the vast majority of my classes were purely lecture-based. Um, you know, learn, memorize, regurgitate for exams. Of course, we had tons of clinical rotations, so I was educated as a physical therapist. We had lots of clinical rotations, um, lots of hands-on labs, but again, they were very traditional in the teaching. So there is some interesting irony that I'm such um, uh, a fan of facilitation and of truly tapping into learners' own active learning and their own drive for uh, grounding their learning in their clinical hopes and dreams. Uh, so yeah, I think I think it's been an interesting journey. And for me, I'm going to stereotype physiotherapists. We're very, very practical data-driven people <laughs> and um, many of you might might know if you have googled me or looked on LinkedIn that I uh, specialize in teamwork and interprofessional education so I, I bring up assumptions and stereotypes about professions a lot and I think that's a true stereotype about physical therapists um, but I will add that I've seen the evolution in our adult education systems of a lack of having learning stick when we use a consistently uh, lecture-based learning. Our learners are starting to really need to see the clinical relevance and see the links with the daily work that they're going to do. And I'm now 100% convinced that using combinations of learning approaches that include facilitation are the best way to have our learners truly 
deeply actively learn and be able to use this information with their clients and patients moving forward. So with that, um, there, there are definitely different models of facilitation. Um, you know, I, and, and everything can't move to facilitation. I'm one that if it still requires a lecture that it's due about 10, 15, 20 minutes at most of what we call like a theory burst, the, the lecture part, but then give them something to do. Um, talk a little bit about that model as well as some of the other models that I know that you've used and, and have studied um, when it comes to facilitation. Great. So I love what you've just highlighted around using theory bursts. And I think this is where the field is really moving towards. So acknowledging that giving some core content and core theory, evidence, literature is absolutely critical. And the vast majority of us need that for our deep learning. So I think having that really builds on what we know from the literature around, for instance, the curve of forgetting. So this idea that if uh, a learner attends a one-hour lecture, there's some data and quite a bit of writing that talk about that if you ask them 10 minutes later what they remember, the percentage of learning starts to drop very, very quickly. So you might have um, left with, say, 80%, uh, 90% of what was spoken about. And by quickly by day two, that information in your memory will have dropped. You'll have had a curve of forgetting. So it drops down to say 50 to 80%. And unfortunately, it keeps going. So by day seven, the estimates are that we have dropped and we're down sitting in the single digits of how much we're actually remembering. So I think your description of having a key theory burst of key information and then having an activity using the information for some kind of active application, knowledge transfer, case, uh, exploration of how it could be used helps that learning and that new information to stick in a much deeper part of us that our learners can then then use that that memory and there's lots of really interesting ways that we can structure both our lectures or key theory bursts with those activities to really ground it so i'd love to share at some point today some of those little tips and and acronyms that we can use that can help us to remember what those those key pieces are you also mentioned the, I, the concept that there's lots of different facilitation methods. So certainly having a key uh, lecture, a key theory burst is one, but we also know, of course, on our clinical rotations that we can have some small group um, sessions where there's much more uh, small group facilitative questions, application during cases. We can be doing this live, we can be doing this online, and certainly in our COVID world now, really looking at those virtual learning experiences that we that we have. We can also create learning guides so that we can have off-site facilitators use our teaching guides to use um, our coaching or facilitation techniques and be able to be uh, working with learners in smaller groups. So having sort of off-site facilitators use that guide. So I think we, we think sometimes this facilitation in one model and there are so many out there that we can, we can utilize to help um, give learners different types of experiences that, that can really fit the model and where the learning is occurring. So you mentioned that um, you had some tips and acronyms. Um, let's go ahead and hear those. Sure. Yeah, I think that um, there's there's some nice ones that I think about when I'm thinking about whether it's in a course or in a teaching module versus on a clinical rotation. 
Um, and I often sort of structure them a little bit differently. When I think about teaching for a module, a course, a presentation, uh, some kind of theory burst, um, I use the acronym SAVER, S-A-V-E-R. So I'll just break that down. Uh, S of SABER really is about stories. So the idea that stories stick. Um, we know from history, if we look back in many like indigenous cultures and in a lot of um, diverse cultures that stories and, and mottos um, have passed on from generation to generation. And we can think back in our own journeys when we've attended a presentation. If someone tells a really strong clinical experience or a story um, linked in with data, that's a, something that stays front and center and you remember that story you remember how the the light bulbs were going off for you perhaps when you could could see it actually in practice so s stories the a is analogies so i find that adult learners really benefit well from familiar things that are easily remembered that you can use analogies for so if you can link it to something else in someone's clinical experience if you can link it with um, a personal connection with uh, your own health journey for instance those analogies can help so a is analogies. V is visuals. I think we're seeing more and more in facilitation that we're using less words on our slides or less words when we're uh, trying to describe things, but we're using visuals, we're using pictures, we're using um, metaphors, we're using um, uh, captured images that really tell the story in a different way. So V is visuals. E is examples. To make learning stick, we need to have it be explained in multiple different ways. And I think examples do that. When we uh, practice clinically, we need to see not just one-offs, but we need to see it repeated with different types of patients and different types of settings. And that can really help our learners when they hear the, the breadth of examples that make learning relevant. So ease examples. And then R in SAVER is repetition. <laughs> learners need to, to hear things a couple of times to have something stick. And you don't have to say it exactly the same way. In fact, it's best if you tweak it slightly so it doesn't sound repetitious. But if there's some key messages that you want your learners to take away, even if it's a, a short clinical rotation uh, observation session, if you can repeat some of those key messages, you have a better uh, chance that your learners will take those away with you. So SAVER, keep saving the memories. It's a nice acronym um, and I find I sort of keep it in my pocket when I'm doing a, a course or module. And then if we're thinking about clinical rotations, I often will use um, some work by Naher and Stevens from 2003. And I can give some of these um, references for people if they're interested. But I really like the simplicity of the one-minute preceptor. Um, and I've referenced this in an article that I helped to wrote write with some of my American colleagues in California called the Interprofessional um, education and Practice Guide number five, which was published in the Journal of Interprofessional Care. And we talk about using a one-minute preceptor model where we just simply do five things. If we have a quick one minute in a clinical rotation or in a, a patient interaction that we can focus on with our learner. So first, get a commitment make sure that the learner understands how important this is, probe for supporting evidence, give a quick question to find out where your learner's at, do they have some of the evidence, data, literature, theoretical underpinnings for it, teach some general rules about what the, the client interaction is meant to cover, reinforce what they did right, and then correct any mistakes that you see. So sometimes these quick little five, uh, five tips can be kept in mind whether you're doing a course or module or whether you're doing something in a, in a clinical rotation. What do you think of those, Deb?
I love them. I, you know, we, we've talked about the one minute preceptor, but this was the first time I heard of your SAVER acronym. And here I am, I'm like jotting down notes and, and whatnot. So um, I will definitely take that one uh, forward with me as, as I go through this. Um, but thinking of these, the, the tips and the different styles of facilitation, it, it comes to mind that, you know, in our residency programs or, you know, the clinical years of, of medical school or even in medical school, that we have different faculty teaching some of the same concepts in, in our small group. And, and really to get them, everybody teaches different, everybody has a little bit different of a philosophy of um, how to teach, um, their skills in teaching in, in, in general. How do we get them to, to lead students and our learners um, the same way. They're not going to have the same expectations. What, what do you see there? Oh, you ask always such great questions, Deb. Yeah, I think you've, you've touched on something that I really hoped we would cover today, which is really a facilitator's magic, magic ingredient is taking the learners where they're at. And to do that, we need to be very uh, prepared to understand what they've got that's got them there so far and what their content and uh, knowledge is that of where they're at, whether they're, you know, a first year resident, a fifth year, obviously massive difference, um, but also where you know, where the, the group has been at. So if you're doing like a small group session, very important to know, is it the first session? Is it the third? Is it the 10th time this group's been together? And the reason I bring that up is, in my view, as a facilitator, you go diff through different stages of your coaching style, your facilitating style, depending on where your learner's at. And a model that I love to talk about with this is um, I was fortunate enough to have my thesis supervisor, Marilyn Lakin, and she created a facilitator model that follows the stages of group development. So many listeners will be extremely familiar with Tuckman's stages of group development, which talks about that when there is um, a small group of learners together that they will start out with a forming stage, move to storming, some kind of form of um, of of performing and norming as they really get sort of more comfortable together. And this idea that we as facilitators can therefore change our style. So if it's the first time you've met your learners, um, whether they're in a small group or a single, uh, single learner, it's okay to be a lot more directive. And I actually, we actually use that wording and Lakin's model talks about that, that if the group or the learner is at an, a more junior stage, it's okay to be much more directive and to think of yourself as needing to set the climate, setting expectations, setting an agenda, giving a little bit more teaching is the right thing to do because that's where the learner's at. And then as they get into higher levels of development, you can modify so that you can do step back a little bit more, be a little bit more coaching, be a little bit more asking questions to encourage them to learn deeper. Um, use more of the other learners in the group to take on more of those leadership um, realms. So I'm really happy to share. It's a it's a nice model that I have found lowers facilitations facilitators stress if they know it's okay. I can be more directive now because my learner needs it. And now that I've seen my learner has reached a slightly higher level, I can evolve my facilitation style to ease out a little bit and to use more questions. Am I explaining that well, Deb? Does that can you can you see where I'm going with that approach? Yes, I, I think that that's one of the things, especially like early on in medical school, that even when I was teaching, that I was like, you know, this is the first time they're hearing this. I can't just turn everything over to them and then be self-directed learners. They're still learning the content to begin with. So, yes. Um, yes. If, if only I heard you say that ten years ago. <laughs> 
Well, yeah, I think that, I don't know why exactly, but I think facilitation or active learning has become this thing where it's sort of a one size fits all. And we're not meant to give the answers. We're meant to ask the learners and keep them learning on their own. And I'd really like to flip that on its head and say the best facilitators I know assess what point their learner is at and then modify their facilitation style to be where the learners need them to be. And as I say, I really found that relaxes a lot of facilitators who are more comfortable in those, you know, more directive phases. And a lot of us were educated that way. And that's okay if that's where your learners are at. Great. And then still saying like with the, the facilitation, um, I know everybody's fear is being asked a question that we don't know the answer to. I mean, I have that fear with my nine and five-year-old on some things right now, especially with homeschool virtual learning, you know, somehow how I was taught math is not how they're being taught math now, but you know, we'll, we'll go with it. Um, so so our, our biggest fear um, is, is being asked that, that question. Um, or, you know, the answer's not in that expert guide that was created by the faculty that created the active learning event. What is the best way to handle those questions? Oh, yeah, such a common question, isn't it? And I mean, I am feeling that way on this podcast because I'm worried what you're going to ask me. So, you know, it, it happens at all levels, regardless of how long we've been at this game. Um, I think that the power of questions is such a valuable skill for all facilitators to have. Um, and, you know, we joke that if you have a learner ask you a really tough question, you, you have the risk if you ask a question back that you're just stalling. But frankly, you kind of are in some ways. And that's okay, too, because you want to know where they're going with that question. Um, so asking them a question to inquire about the why behind their question um, is a real skill, I think, for a facilitator. We think about helping our learners to learn for what they need, and that includes the why. So I think um, asking a little bit more questions to pull out from them where they're at with their level of expertise is a great technique for us to use because that often can we can build on something that they already have a nugget of an idea on. Um, we also can really help to use some, some frames around core competencies. So if we um, have a competency framework that we're teaching from, whether it's regard to a specific clinical skill or a specific theoretical model, I often will, as a facilitator, go back to some of those basics, if you want to use that word, to, um, to help um, unpack what the what the question is and then you know th my third response to that is it's actually really okay we are not always meant to be quote the expert in everything and I I wish in medicine in healthcare in general there was much more comfort with it being okay to say I actually don't know let's go get that information together and I think we can be very clear with our learners where our expertise lies, where it doesn't, and to role model that we are all reflective practitioners that are always learning and growing is an, an important modeling that we want to encourage our learners to have. And so if you, we really don't know the answer, I think it does our learners to service to pretend that we do or to completely avoid answering, but it might be the right answer to say, I actually don't know, or in my field of interprofessional education, maybe another healthcare professional on the team knows that answer. Let's go ask the occupational therapist. Let's go speak to the pharmacist. Let's go talk to the nurse to get that information. I love that approach. Um, and one of my favorite things uh, when I'm facilitating learners and they're asking me a question. I, I do some of the tools that you just said. I ask them, you know, why are you asking this? Or nice. tell me what you know or think about this. Because yes. oftentimes 
the questions that they're asking isn't really the question that they have. Yes. Yes. And so how, how do you prepare um, facilitators? Because becoming a facilitator just isn't overnight. Like tonight I'm going to, or, you know, tomorrow I'm going to be a facilitator. I mean, it can start, you can start implementing some of these practices, but to be, you know, that expert facilitator of, of, a, of a course, um, you, you have to have some of these tools in your back pocket. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah, I really agree. And I'm, I'm a huge fan of really promoting key faculty development, which I know is what you're doing with great expertise, um, Deb, and congratulations to MSU for running these kind of um, programs to help with some of those concrete tools. Um, I think there's a lot of preparation that one needs to do for a facilitation session, much more than you might think. If you're preparing a lecture with slides, we know the amount of time and energy that takes. But if we're facilitating like on a clinical rotation or we're doing a small group facilitation session, there may not be slide preparation, but there's other preparation that we're really needing to do. And I, I think we need to support our facilitators to have that time and space to make sure that they have a plan, that they have a facilitation plan and a, what am I going to do if this happens? What will I do uh, for standard, you know, small group things where I, I may have a dominant learner, where I may have a quiet learner? Um, we, we, we need to ground ourselves in some of that important preparation that we don't uh, traditionally maybe think of that we can just sort of do it on the fly. And the more facilitators are prepared with some of these tools or acronyms or frameworks is critical, but also just in their thinking of in those spur of the moment, what will I do when um, thoughts, it's really a helpful and builds confidence, I think, of facilitators to know that they've, they've got some of that ready to go. I think, oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, no, I was going to say, on, on that note, you know, we, we talk about preparing lectures and preparing, you know, case books to do, you know, uh, very scheduled facilitation. But you brought up the one minute preceptor earlier, which is oftentimes spur the moment facilitation of learning. And we're going to see a lot more of that in our graduate medical education, our residency programs, our clerkship, where they're doing facilitation just kind of on the fly. So what would be your top um, tips on effectively incorporating more of that facilitation model um, in the spur of the moment? Spur of the moment, yes. And so I have some key tips that I always keep in mind. And this, I think, leads you know, going back to what I was just covering around the preparation, because before I go into any facilitation session, I do remember try and ground myself in what my key tips are. So that in the moment when something happens, I can remind myself, okay, yeah, remember, here's the key things I want for takeaway. So uh, one of them that I always do is I keep going back to the learning objectives. I find it really grounding as a facilitator. And I know lots of educators may not be a big fan of learning objectives, but oh my goodness, they're so helpful. They're important for the learners to guide this huge mess of learning that they're trying to do. They have so much to take in. And so reinforcing those learning objectives for the learners so that they know in this session or in this day, this is what you know, we're hoping to, to cover. Uh, with these patients that we're seeing in the clinic today, let's really focus on, you know, diabetes. Let's really focus on specific medications and minimizing side effects, whatever the, the goal is for that day. Uh, and if I'm getting confused as a facilitator because there's so much happening, those learning objectives bring me back home. So that's one tip I would really encourage facilitators to keep in mind. Um, second is really thinking about the clinical relevancy. Our learners are so motivated, that's the reason they've gone into these fields, is to 
think about the impact directly on the patients and clients that they're working with. And so I always try and make the clinically relevant links as a facilitator whenever I can. And learners will tell you that makes them really happy. They need the theories. Yes, we all need that as, as, as a key foundational piece, but it's those clinical links that they get super excited about. Um, another tip that I really try and do is make sure that your learners have a takeaway. So even if it's been a quick clinical visit, try and save, you know, 30 seconds right at the end of the interaction to ask the learner, what's, what have you taken away from this? Encourage that reflection on their part, the ability to summarize and to think about, so what? What is my takeaway from today. I use that model in almost all of my facilitation sessions because it helps people to remember all the learning that they've done in that session, whether it's a one-hour session, a one-hour address or, or presentation or lecture, or a 10-minute clinical visit, but encouraging them to think about what's my concrete takeaway helps to summarize and give them something specific that they can um, focus on moving forward. So helpful um, with, the, with those tips and, and, and you know, student reflection as well as self-reflection. Um, I know that we just gave a couple tips on how to start integrating um, this into your practice, especially if it's not already there. Um, but we also, we also know that whenever there's a change to a course or a rotation or, or how you teach, it's gonna be met with, um, one, it might not be perfect. Um, two, it might receive negative feedback. And the learners might be like, wait a minute, Dr. Young's teaching different than she taught yesterday. <laughs> um, what's going on? So um, how, do, how do we, or how should we respond to, to that feedback um, and not just reverting to the, like that status quo? So what's your process of the forward thinking? Mm. Yeah, you packed a lot into that question, Deb. <laughs> so I really like it. And I actually think about this topic a lot. And so my advice for all learners on this is, is sort of two things. One, I'm pretty explicit about why I'm teaching the way I'm teaching. I tell them right up front why. And so example is, you know, if you said that example where, yes, Dr. Young, you used to teach this way and now today you're doing something different, I'd tell them why. I'd say, you know, I feel like you as learners got some of the key theoretical frameworks, you've had some of the key information. I think now you're ready to start trying it in a different way. So let's apply the learning that, you're, that you've had. And today we're going to look at it in a different way to deepen your learning. I, I make it explicit what I'm doing. When we teach a facilitation course that I teach at the University of Toronto for the last 15 years, we, we call it the play within the play. <laughs> so we sort of use a bit of a Shakespeare analogy here, but it's the idea of showing what's behind what we're doing and making that explicit for learners, take them into the way you're thinking and why you're doing it this way, helps them and makes them, I find, less resistant to something different than to the status quo, especially if you can appeal to their understanding that this is an evolution for me and actually I'm at a different point in my development today. And that's, so that's the right thing to do. I also really keep in mind my adult learning theories and principles. And I, I always go back to that. You know, Knowles helped us so much, I think, in the field. Um, you know, back in the 80s when he was doing so much writing about what makes adult learners tick. What, what, do they, what do they need? And we know that they need internal motivation. We know that they want task-oriented learning that align with their own realities and their own lived experiences. So I make those very explicit when I'm, when I'm teaching. I build on those theories 
when we're facilitating and and helping to do that, knowing that different learners need to have hands-on experiences. Some of them need to um, watch and observe before they do something. So I try and really cover the range of those kind of experiences in facilitation so that all learners get what they need and that it appeals to those different learning styles. Lynn, every time I speak with you, I learn something new. So, <laughs> so earlier I said, you know, I always ask the, the learner, why are you asking this? Or tell me what you already know about this. And you just totally flip that on me. You're like, explain the why to them. Of why explain you're doing the why. So, explain yeah. the why. I, I love that so much. And I don't, I don't think we do that enough. I don't think we do either. And again, I, you know, I don't know where that has come from in our field, but this pressure we put on ourselves that we have to be the expert, we have to know all the answers, and we have to, you know, put on a, a big show. I really like to, to deconstruct that a bit. And it, it does make our jobs easier if we can explain the thinking that's going on behind us. And wow, do clinicians love that because that's what they're going to be needing to do when they're doing a, an interview with a patient, an assessment with a, in a clinical rotation. They need to be doing that with the patient as well. So explaining our why, making it explicit what we're doing, bringing back to those learning objectives, it does help to reinforce and keep a learning on point for what it's meant to be doing that day. Do you debrief after your facilitations? Is it every facilitation once a week do you debrief yourself on, you know, how did the week go? What's your process there? Yeah, that's been a journey for me. I do it much more now than I ever did before. I think that, you know, you made the comment earlier that a lot of us uh, fear getting developmental feedback constructive feedback, if you want to call it that way. And I think that's a fair human trait that it's tricky and, and can be hard to get that, that sort of feedback. And so I've had a real journey with that where I now before a session, particularly if I'm with a co-facilitator, I will do two things. One is say to them, um, I'm really trying to improve my facilitation skills and I will be asking you for feedback after. So please keep that in mind and I'm, I really welcome feedback. So I tell them that in advance. Um, and I also am usually very specific. So I, as a facilitator, constantly am using self-assessment tools to assess where am I at and what are my learning goals for this semester or for this academic year. Um, and then I specifically ask people for feedback, whether it's asking from my learners, or from other faculty, facilitators, preceptors that I'm working with to give specific feedback. So as an example, I a couple of years ago found when I was watching other facilitators, I loved how fun they were. There was a sense of humor to them. There was a, a levity that I feared I wasn't doing enough of, that I was too serious, too intense, too focused on, you know, getting everything taught to my learners. So I asked my learners and my facilitators in advance, I said, you know, I'm trying to be more relaxed, more fun, more real. Um, give me some feedback on that. And so that was my concrete goal is to be more funny and to be a little bit lighter. And it was really helpful because I was able to get some advice on that from my learners. So I like... I like doing things like that. It's, it's a very uh, open model, but it's also very intentional. And so I use self-assessment facilitator tools to help guide me in that. And then I feel that I'm evolving and developing as a facilitator. I, I really enjoyed that, that advice because, you know, we all say that we want feedback, but normally only if it's positive feedback. We don't want the, neg <laughs> we don't want the negative feedback. Um, Indeed. So, so one thing that I do um, with the faculty that I, that I work with that, um, that come to me and say, you know, I've received negative feedback on this. I'm trying to get better at this and whatnot. 
um, I ask them, I go, you know, give me some of the feedback um, that you've received so I know where your learners are coming from. Um, we sometimes lack getting good feedback. I mean, a, a comment like that sucked. What, well, what part of that sucked? Yeah. You know what? Yeah. <laughs> I can't really fix it if I don't know where, where the problem is. And so we've now started to do a lot of development of our learners on how to give effective feedback as well as how, to receive, how to receive feedback. So I think there's a lot more work um, in, in that area as well. Um, I, I really agree, Deb. Yeah. And, and, you know, I would add in our COVID world currently that this is a moving target because we're needing to not only think about our face-to-face -face facilitation, but we've now really pivoted to needing to think about our virtual facilitation and how that's the same but different. And so asking feedback generally, our questions need to slightly be different if we're doing a virtual facilitation session. We need to be learning more from our learners in a targeted way about some of those pieces that is now uh, a changed scene. It's, it's a changed environment. Well, one, one talking about the virtual world, one thing that I've noticed, um, and I actually, I didn't pick up on this until my third grader started the year out in a virtual classroom. Um, and, you know, the teacher would be like, okay, here's the assignment. You can all log off now and do the assignment. Anybody have any questions? Nobody would have questions. All of a sudden they would log off and my son would be like, mom, I don't know how to do this. And I'm like, well, why, why didn't you ask? Um, and it was like, well, I'm not going to ask over Zoom and everybody can hear my question. And it really got me thinking that in the classroom setting, when we're all in person, if you have a question on a break, you can go up to the presenter and say, hey, I have this question. It's more one-on-one. -on -one. You're not broadcasting your question. And we as adults have that same reservations as a nine-year-old does. Definitely. Definitely. And so how do we break down that barrier in this virtual space? Because I don't see the virtual space going away anytime soon. I agree, Deb. I don't think virtual space is going away, both for teaching and frankly, for patient care. I mean, I think we're going to be seeing more and more virtual care being offered. Um, and that may be it for, for many communities, a silver lining about this, that much more access, um, much more ease for our patients not having to travel, and especially if they're not well to, um, you know, to be in, in a clinical environment. So we're doing a lot of time to really think about what we're calling sort of website manner for virtual teaching as opposed to our bedside manner, our website manner. And we're also really thinking about webiquette. So virtual teaching, how do we have the etiquette and how do we create learning spaces for safely asking questions? And so I think there's a lot of science, there's a lot of things that are being written and learned about both of those areas. Uh, that needs to be really added into our skill set as facilitators to enable us to do best virtual teaching. And some of the platforms offer some really great opportunities, I think, that can mimic those face-to-face, -face, you know, chances to your example around if there's a break, one learner can come up and quickly ask the teacher, the facilitator, uh, a question. Well, you know, chat, chat boxes, chat rooms can do that because you can send a direct question only to the facilitator. And it, it can be shared, you know, um, with the, the larger group, but your name doesn't have to be associated with it all the time. So we're spending a lot of time and energy right now thinking about when we think about learning and creating good learning environments, what does that mean online? And how can we create safe psychological safety for our learners when, when they're online? And I think some of those examples um, that we see from technology can help with that uh, and we need to keep exploring that more and more. Great. 
One last question that I have before um, I'll let you give some of your takeaways and, and open up uh, any questions to the couple attendees that we have. Um, it's jumping back more to uh, curriculum in general. Um, as we begin bridging curriculum with facilitation, you know, course to course, semester to semester, rotation to rotation in the clinical setting. Um, I know we talked a little bit about like meeting the learner where they're at, but how as facilitators do you propose that we learn where they're at so that we're not just reteaching um, the same concept that we're really taking them to the next step? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a big question as well. And I think that, um, you know, there, there's a couple of concrete ways to do that, that many of us will be familiar with as, you know, curriculum developers and certainly formal assessments help us to do that. I'm a huge fan of formative feedback and formative program evaluation. I really use that as one of my top um, sort of curriculum pieces is that I'm constantly trying to get formative program eval and formative assessment so that I can see that evolution of the learning as courses go or as an academic year goes. I don't want to be surprised to find out at the end where my students, my learners have major gaps that I thought had been conveyed with the current format, but may have been missing from their perspectives. And so building in touch points of formative assessments and formative evaluations, separating those two, um, uh, is really uh, a key success for us as we try and look at the, the bigger picture of where we're trying to get to. I also really try, I mentioned competency frameworks uh, earlier, and I really find as uh, an educator that those um, are proving more and more useful for exactly what you're talking about right now, that sort of the bigger curriculum redesign. If we know our, you know, our four or five main frames that we want our learners to come out of a course or a program with, and if we can build um, using like Brunner's learning um, advancements, thinking from novice to intermediate to advanced or competent level, scaffolding our learning so that we have a core competency that we want them to know. What do they need at the novice level? What do they need at sort of the immersive immediate uh, intermediate level? And what do we want at that higher level of, of full competence and, and more senior? And ensuring that we cover those key frames repeatedly, uh, scaffolding the learning, I think is a nice way of developing the bigger picture of our curriculum outcomes. So then that's really going to come back to like the course coordinators and program directors yes. and then the, okay. So the foundation has to be built by those that have influence over the curriculum in general. Yes, and I think that's a nice tip because often as facilitators, we dip in and out, right? We're not, uh, we're not always getting to see the, the bigger picture of where the, the entire course is going. And so having those course directors, the, the coordinators of it to, to keep orienting us to where we fit in the bigger picture and vice versa for the facilitators to be feeding back to the course director. This is where the, I found the learners to be at and where I see their next learning needs to be. Uh, there needs to be that back and forth quite quite consistently so that as facilitators we're not work, working in a, with our blinders on just to, to our our specific session that we're running but we see the bigger picture and we understand where the bigger picture is. Lynn thank you so much for being uh, here with me today. Uh, quick takeaways that you want to share with everybody. Oh, I can't believe how fast this went. I Thanks, Tab. I, I had so much more to say. So, you know, I, I really hope that I've given some practical takeaways. I hope I'm modeling what I'm preaching, which is that, that 
preparation, um, having some key acronyms or key frames in your pocket, in your toolkit, if you will, as a facilitator is a really important thing. I hope that you may look at some of the citations that I've referenced. Um, please explore the, the Lakin model where she pairs group development with facilitator development. I think that can really help facilitators have a different frame and comfort, confidence going into a session to read where your learner's at and, and be the facilitator of where they're at is a, is a key thing. And I think the one of the last tips that I, I did want to emphasize, um, something that we are really talking a lot more about, I think, in practice, is that we have so many tasks that we have to do, but we really need to spend time thinking about the process of how we're learning and how we're making decisions together. So I hope that all of the listeners can, can take that as a takeaway, that we as facilitators have a lot of core tasks we have to do, but how the learning happens is equally and sometimes more important uh, for our learners as a takeaway. So continuing to keep a, a little way scale in mind, have I covered all the tasks, but I also have I covered all the process? Have my learners had a, a good strong experience that's relevant for them that they'll use as a takeaway? Lynn, this was so much fun. Oh, thank you, Deb. I did want to put you on the hot seat and oh, no. ask okay. if you have any key tips because you've done, we've had the pleasure of doing some nice facilitation together. And I know you've got a lot of great expertise in this too. So I wondered if our learners wanted to hear some of your top <laughs> tips just as we, uh, as we sunset the session today. Um, uh, I think my, my key tip is uh, similar to some of the things that you shared, but really knowing where uh, your learners are in the process. Um, I can speak from teaching from pharmacology to first year medical students to application on the unit uh, when I'm rounding with a medical team that my expectations for those two different learners um, is very different. Um, and so the questions I ask or what I would expect them to be able to do would be very different as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah, I, um, I always draw back to uh, a Canadian colleague of mine, Steinert, who works um, in a different university in a different province. And she published a paper in 2004 that had she had asked a lot of students what what do you value most in a facilitator what makes for a good facilitator in your mind and the results are really surprising and interesting and one of the top ones that jumps out when i share her key highlights with learners when i'm teaching in faculty development is the comment that the students want the facilitator to want to be there so I just encourage people to let your let your enthusiasm out. Let let people know that you really uh, are enjoying facilitating and uh, learning. That you you know value your your patient interactions. Let that enthusiasm out. Enthusiasm really for facilitation can be contagious, and it's that kind of uh, non-threatening approach that I think um, can really engage us all and and give us some energy back. Because facilitating can be fatiguing, but if we can get some energy back from our learners, um, what a great what a great win for all. All of us. Yes, it by all means definitely helps when we all want to be where we're at. So yes. All right, and thank you again so much. Um, I look forward to our continued uh, collaboration as we move forward in this COVID world right now. Yes, stay well and stay healthy to everyone. Thank you very much. Thank you.